Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This is our monthly update on the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us again will be Dr. Paul Cieslak, infectious disease specialist and medical director for the Oregon Public Health Division's Communicable Disease and Immunization Programs, and vaccinologist and epidemiologist Dr. John Grabenstein, who operates Vaccine Dynamics, a multifaceted consulting service, and is former vaccine director for the Department of Defense and Merck Pharmaceuticals. Yeah, I was uh, talking to some of my staff and telling them we were going to do another COVID update, and we were kind of thinking, I wonder how long we're going to be doing updates for, but at Dr. Doctor, as long as it's something that we're all worried about, we're going to try and keep it up at least once a month. I was really excited, though, this week because I, I got a headline in my email that said, now we've had more people vaccinated than who have tested positive in America for COVID. And I don't know where on the charts that falls, but that's something that I thought was a huge uh, milestone for us. Yes, and uh, we keep getting information that we think will be of interest to patients. It's amazing how many articles I get in my inbox and I jot down questions to ask our guests. So uh, today we've got two experts again. Uh, it's interesting, since our last update, both Pope Francis and Pope Emeritus Benedict have received two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And um, also a story I don't think you've heard, Andrew, but I really like this one. I think earlier this week, my sister and her husband both got their first dose of vaccine. And when I heard that she was going to get it, she's a couple years younger than me. I said, why are you getting it? Well, they're part of a music group called the Hoagies that often plays in nursing homes. And in their state of Colorado, they want them back in the nursing homes. And I thought, what a darn humane thing to do. I, I brought tears to my eyes. Well, that's really good because I, I know so many people, we've, we've started screening more for depression and anxiety as part of the pandemic in our practice. And we have just seen so many people responding, unfortunately, with new symptoms of anxiety and depression. I can only imagine the nursing homes having those people in there to give them some interaction and enjoyment, that's got to be a huge boost. Yes. And uh, also, we just want to let listeners know uh, that there is a book for sale you might be interested in for Lent. The proceeds are actually going to raise money for outreach to the pre-med students that we reach out to from the Catholic Medical Association. It's called What Christ Suffered, and uh, one of us wrote it. And uh, <laughs> on, on Wednesday of Holy Week... Uh, I'll be on EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa talking about it. But if you're interested, our Sunday visitor sells it. We'd like to sell a lot of copies so you can help understand uh, suffering better, what Christ's suffering was, and how we can learn from that to suffer better. It's called What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. And also, I got a little uh, anecdote. Go ahead, Andrew. No, I was going to say, I know, Tom, that most of our listeners have already read the book. But this might not be a bad thing if you're trying to look at something to do during Lent with a spouse or, you know, a sister or brother or something you might do together journeying through Lent. This, I was impressed just having kind of been familiar with the material that Tom's given at other talks and stuff. This book's going to really open your eyes to things that you thought you understood or knew or might have heard from people who really didn't have the research that, that Tom has done to really enlighten us as to what Christ suffered and really some of the technical details of the crucifixion and passion that were news to me. So if you don't have something that you're going to do for Lent, you should give something up, but you should also do something positively. I'd strongly recommend this, what Christ suffered. And it does go back in history, unlike any of the other books doctors have written, and integrates it with something not only for your mind, but for your will. That is, what do you do with the suffering you have? And on another note, I got an email from uh, CMA friends in Cincinnati that uh, they had a doctor in their area who was listening to Dr. Doctor, and because of listening to Dr. Doctor, decided to join in the CMA. And Andrew and I would just like to encourage you, if you are a physician or a, a physician in training, uh, consider joining it. Add your voice to ours because we want to make a difference for our patients throughout the country to be able to practice medicine the way that we think is best, especially in line with the way we as Catholics understand the human person. 
especially if you're a student and you're in training. I was introduced to the CMA right when I was kind of starting residency. And I said, man, I wish I had this in medical school because there are times when you kind of feel like, you know, maybe, maybe other people don't look at the world the way you do. Well, it turns out they're out there and we've got the corner on them. So if you're looking for them, the CMA is where you can find them. And finally, before we go to our break and then bring on our special guests, I will pose our medical trivia question of the day. The category, influenza in the era of COVID. The CDC collates data each year from both public health and clinical laboratories regarding proven cases of influenza. For last year's influenza season, as of the end of January, these labs had documented over 128,000 cases. According to the CDC's influenza tracking for the 2020-21 influenza season that started in late September, how many cases, or better yet, what percent reduction in test-proven influenza has been found by these same labs during the same period of time a year later? You're going to have to hang on till the end of the show to find out, and we'll be back with more here on Dr. Doc. And welcome back. We've got our special interview today with uh, two guests returning to us, Dr. Paul Sieslak, Dr. John Grabenstein. Let's get right to it. John, a January 16th report from Norway reported that 23 elderly patients died after receiving the Pfizer tech vaccine. How is this a cause for concern or not a cause for concern? Well, uh, so there's 23 families that are grieving uh, because they've lost their loved ones. But from a vaccine perspective, it's not a cost, cause and effect relationship. Uh, and the public health authorities in Norway have looked at it carefully. They came back several days later and said, no, this is not a cause and effect situation. It's, it's, it's old age, essentially. And, and frankly, I have to say, I'm a little disappointed at the people in Norway, the, the public health authorities. The World Health Organization told them that national governments should be ready to compare adverse events like death to the background rates of death in 80 and 90 year old people. And, and it's a little unfortunate that they let, you know, let this be a media story before they've done their homework. And this hasn't been a problem in the media since that report in mid January, has it John? Not, not as big. I mean, there, there are folks who are saying, you know, that anybody, you know, each time somebody dies after, you know, shortly after they got vaccinated, you know, there, there are folks who are, willing to jump on it and say the vaccine did it, but it's just not uh, not true from a cause and effect. Uh, in other words, there's a lot of people being vaccinated in the world, and there's a lot of people normally dying in the world, and there's going to be some that are going to come together in those two groups. And a lot of old people being, you know, with all due respects to, you know, 80 and 90 year old folks, they're good folks. You know, they're, they're uh, you know, some percentage of them will die each day. Right. Do we, do we have a current number about how many people have been vaccinated so far? So uh, on February 10th, it was um, 42,000 vaccinations have been entered into- 42 million? The, sorry, 42 million, thank you. 42 million entered into the, into the computers and about 32 million of them are, it's about 32 million people. So 10 million people have gotten two doses. Um, so it's 32 million people, something like that. Man, that's a pretty large number. Yeah, because that's one of the things I keep getting from people. Oh, this one person died after they got the shot. And it's constantly trying to talk about there's a difference between, you know, happenstance and cause and effect, because it really seems like for 40 million people receiving, you know, 32 million people receiving a vaccine, if there was a problem, we'd be hearing a lot more about it. That, that's right. I mean, but, you know, it, we're, we're past the point we, we are at the point where we, we can be really confident we know what the vaccine's doing. I mean, you, you always keep your eyes and ears open. But I think the first time I was on the show several months ago, I told you the story about Pittsburgh in 1976 and the three heart attack deaths. Yes. And yes. then they went back and figured out, well, how many heart attacks deaths do we have a day in, in Pittsburgh? And, and the answer was 10 or 12 or something like that. You know, so this is this in the same ballpark. So, Paul. COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, deaths, they're dropping everywhere in the U.S. What are we doing that this is happening? Or is it happening despite what we're not doing? Well, I, I have to believe that people have um, embraced, gotten used to, gotten more practiced at following the recommendations that have been made all along. Uh, don't gather in large groups. Uh, 
six feet of distancing, masking if you have to be uh, anywhere near anyone else. And I think what you're seeing is the difference between an effective R, an effective transmission rate, uh, going from 1.1 down to 0.9. And, and the, uh. the difference over time is, you know, when, when you have exponential growth uh, is, um, it is huge. And, uh, you know, in Oregon here where I work, uh, we're on a three-month decline. And I think it's explained by, by uh, going from 1.1 to 0.9. Now, Paul, some, some people have made the assertion that there's so many people who may have been asymptomatically infected earlier on that we're actually getting some level of immunity in communities there. It, do we have any evidence to, to look at that one way or another? You know, I haven't really seen good evidence, but I do think it's reasonable to believe that, uh, you know, with the numbers of people who have been infected, it may be playing some blunting role in transmission. CDC is reporting 27 million Americans, uh, you know, have been reported as cases. The number that have been infected has to be higher than that, uh, possibly by, you know, several fold. And, and, uh, and the people most likely to be infected are probably the same people most likely already to have been infected. And so that may be playing a role, but I will say that I don't think we're anywhere near uh, population immunity or community immunity yet. So in, in other words, uh, you know, I had a talk with what Paul Carson, I think John Gravenstein a month ago, and we were thinking that the high-risk groups that hang out together, they've all gotten it. And now there aren't as many high-risk groups hanging out together who might be passing it on. Is there something to that? I do think there's something to that, but I will also say, you know, since I uh, follow the numbers very closely in my own state, I am struck by how uh, the proportion of cases that are in any given age group, including the 20 somethings who uh, have the highest uh, attack rate, uh, continue to have the highest attack rate, uh, you know, through all this time. Uh, so there's still enough of them who haven't been infected yet that uh, they're still getting infected. So no, nobody should really be breathing easy thinking, okay, we've made it through. It's, it's all over now, folks. No, no, we need to keep doing what we're doing because what we're doing is working. And, and so John, back to you, vaccination question. So I've seen written that nobody should pre-medicate before they receive a vaccine. They shouldn't take something like acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I had such a, a strong reaction the first time, though delayed, with my second dose, I took 600 milligrams of ibuprofen before I received my dose. And I still had a reaction, but not as strong. Did that hurt my immunity or not? I don't think so. The, 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 one, the, the, the person who might disagree with me is this guy from, uh, from uh, Poland who wrote an article about 10 years ago where uh, they gave children acetaminophen. It's a European article, so they call it paracetamol. Um, and they showed a little bit lesser antibody response. Um, so, but you know, it hasn't really been replicated. It, it was a modest effect. I, I tell people you're gonna get relief from ibuprofen, you know, within half an hour. So you, you don't need to pre-medicate, um, but it, you know, if, if it makes somebody more confident and willing to go in to get those two, uh, then I, I wouldn't mind. And when I read in that article, is that even though there was a modest effect on priming doses, there was no effect on booster doses. Yeah, right. So, you know, it's a, it's a small thing, I think. So in other words, don't worry if you did or if you didn't. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't. I would not. That's just a preference of mine. Sure, that, that makes sense. Um, how well are we doing getting people vaccinated, John? Are, you know, there's a lot of complaining articles in the media saying, oh, the government's doing an awful job or did an awful job getting people the vaccine who needed it. What's the reality? Well, so um, uh, the state and local health departments were at, had to be at an absolute standstill. Uh, and then all of a sudden we expected them to start vaccinating the following Monday. And, um, and that was mid-December. They're now, you know, almost two months into it. You know, it's not 50 learning curves. It's it's each city, it's each hospital, it's each pharmacy, it's each medical practice. And so there's 10,000 learning curves that people are going through, working out the storage, 
working out the software to, to record the doses and all that. So, you know, it could have been smoother. Um, and, and, you know, uh, you know, lessons have been learned. I think we're, we're, I think we're picking up momentum with more doses per day being administered. Uh, we still have a long way to go, but uh, uh, we're getting there. Paul, I, I was kind of wondering, you hear more and more from multiple government representatives and physicians saying that the country should vaccinate individuals as quickly as possible, even with the first shot of the two shot vaccines, um, without necessarily scheduling the second dose in the 21 to 28 day window, as would be recommended. What, what's the wisdom of that approach? Or is that just, you know, a kind of a hopeful thing? It's not based in science. You can make an argument for it. It's based on some uh, thin data on how effective a single dose of the vaccine is compared to two doses of the vaccine. So, you know, most of what we know about the effectiveness of the vaccines comes from the trials that the manufacturers undertook. And, and they were looking at uh, efficacy with, with two doses. And, and so that's where, you know, we feel most confident making a recommendation. Uh, if there's substantial effectiveness after one dose, then that strategy might make sense. Uh, but uh, I haven't seen the data yet that uh, give me confidence that we should be making that general recommendation. Have you seen anything about that, John? So I've got two good friends who are really preeminent vaccine scientists. They have collaborated on multiple, multiple projects and they're, uh, they, they take opposite views of this question about, you know, give everybody just one, yeah, give more people one dose or give fewer people the second dose. So it, it, I think that's kind of funny, but <laughs> I, I'm with the guy who says, uh, stay with the schedule that was studied, uh, that the thin data that Paul mentioned is it's thin because it's shut so short duration. Yes. Uh, it's only about a month. And uh, because of that, I, I'd rather get every, I, I'd rather get as many people as we can, the full regimen, two doses, uh, rather than the other way around. And what about delaying that second dose? They're saying, oh, instead of three or four weeks, we can go six or 12 weeks. What's so a little bit of a delay is no big deal. You're vulnerable during that time, but you know, get caught up as soon as you can. The, the AstraZeneca product that's being used in Europe might actually benefit because of the nature of the way it's made with having a longer interval. Um, but you know, yeah. Well, that's not a one dose vaccine? Uh, no, that's two doses. Okay. So Johnson & Johnson, which will uh, report out uh, the, or the, it'll show its detailed data uh, by the end of the month, by the end of February, uh, is gonna uh, hopefully is, is bringing a one dose vaccine to the table. So we'll see how that goes. Very good. Now, Paul, uh, John, one thing you want to talk about is, you know, some soft skills. How can we help those people get vaccinated who want to? And, you know, operating on 80, 90 year old patients every day, many of them did have trouble. They had to have some of their adult children get them scheduled. And because it took them so long, it pushed them weeks out in the line. Is, is that a common problem? It's not, we're hearing that those kinds of reports all over the country. Um, what, what worries me the most are the folks who, um, are most vulnerable, and, and, and let's let, let's do some social equity conversation here. I'm I'm worried about African American communities and Hispanic communities, poor communities, uh, where you know you know they got to drive to McDonald's to get internet access, or they don't have a computer. Um, and so you know what can we do wherever you know in whatever situation you're in, lending lending a hand as a community volunteer, or if you're running the clinic, making sure you've got you know, uh, people who speak the language literally or, or figuratively, um, you know, as part of your outreach efforts. I, I think that's really important. And, you know, one, one big part of the outreach, I think that I, I've seen at least in my patient practice is the educational bit. I've heard some people suggesting, hey, let's just keep opening it up to a bigger and bigger group of people that we don't have to talk into it, so to speak, or explain it to, um, rather than really educating people early on and getting the most vulnerable first. Is there wisdom to one of those strategies or? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, at the point where um, you've got excess vaccine, maybe that's okay, but, but I, I, I don't, it doesn't appeal to me because we've got responsibilities to reach, uh, to reach everybody. And especially that, you know, if, if with the attack rates being elevated, the, the, the infection rates being elevated, in African-American communities and Hispanic communities, 
um, we have a social responsibility to, to get them protected. Paul, I have a practical question. Since I co-host the show, I get to ask questions that affect my life if I want to, but they might affect a lot of other people's lives. I want to visit my father, who is in a nursing home, uh, and uh, not in the state where I live. And I was told this week, even though he is two weeks after his second dose of vaccine, I'm a month after my second dose of vaccine, I was thinking about driving up to seeing him. And they are allowing inside visits. But for the visit, they require this. And I want to know if this makes sense or not. I have to have a rapid test done while I'm there to see if I have COVID. I have to wear a mask. I have to sit six feet from him. I'm not allowed to bring in a teenage child. And I'm not allowed to hug him. How risky would you know changing that scenario be? How reasonable is that scenario? And they're not following... They're following their state guidelines. This is not independent to the nursing home. This is what their state is telling them. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, I, I think the risk is very low because the vaccine appears to be very good. Uh, that said, uh, as a practical matter, it's hard to make rules that apply to some people and not others. And, you know, how do you verify someone's vaccination status? So I, I, I just think this is a function of... Um, institutions being unable to slice and dice things as nicely as we'd like to. But, but in truth, I, I think the risk is very low. You know, one, one thing that a lot of people ask me about, as you kind of alluded to, Paul, is monitoring who's actually received the vaccine. And uh, a lot of people are interested in that because there are some companies, um, I've seen some hospitality uh, folks, airlines, suggesting that they, they might require that to use their services. And then there's other folks who are worried about, you know, necessarily being on the grid uh, one way or another for people who are suspicious of the vaccine. Um, what kind of work is going on there? Is that a reasonable thing to expect that there's some registry that's going to be required here? Um, you know, I'm a big believer in our immunization registry, and we have a very good one in Oregon, and it has uh, all kinds of benefits. Um, you know, when did I get my last tetanus shot? Uh, you know, do I need one with my new, uh, the new wound that I just got? Uh, and it's not, and, and you didn't necessarily uh, get the shot at the doctor that you're seeing now. And so the doctor needs some way to, to look for it. And, uh, you know, the medical records don't always follow you as, as you would like. So um, most states, I believe, have uh, immunization registries. Some are better than others. And uh, I want my doses recorded in that immunization registry. John, what do you think? So uh, I think it's, we should get a little more water under the bridge before we uh, have any requirements for vaccination. You know, it has been 32, you know, something million people, 33 or whatever. Uh, but that's not 33 of every kind. That's not 33 million in, in, you know, in every decade of life. And so more data would be make me uh, more comfortable before we went to a mandate. But, you know, if I get on an airplane, uh, I want to get onto an airplane that's safe. If I go to the hospital or clinic, I want the staff to be protected and, and, and so that I'm walking into a safe environment. And so it's not just an individual rights issue. It's a collective duty you know, we got we got to find the right balance between individual rights and collective duties, uh, and uh, you know we'll, we'll get there. But uh, I, I think we can wait a few months before we uh, uh, make anything mandatory. Are, are people thinking about like an endorsement on the driver's license or something to that effect, or more just having a record in the background that can be looked at if needed? I think it's more likely the, the I mean, phys, the physical. Uh, card uh, it wouldn't work. Although I, I was I was on a program a couple weeks ago where I was showing people my father's World War II dog tag and his tetanus toxoid was stamped in metal. <laughs> a T was stamped in metal on his dog tag to show he'd gotten tetanus toxoid. Um, but the, I, I am uh, I'm familiar with some groups that are trying to work out some, essentially some uh, uh, smartphone app systems that are that are verifiable that would. Uh, let you carry around your, um, your, your proof of vaccination in an electric, I don't know if it's Bitcoin or not, sorry, not Bitcoin, blockchain, <laughs> blockchain technology uh, that's, you know, really reliable. So, um, uh, you know, it, technology, I think, can help solve this. I don't know, Paul may have been involved with some of these kinds of conversations up passports that, uh, 
uh, you know, would, would be used outside of a healthcare setting? Uh, I, I've been, I've occasionally heard requests for that sort of thing, but uh, we, we haven't been working on developing them in our state. Asymptomatic infections. Okay, we are gathering more information on that. How important are these in driving the pandemic? Paul, what do you know about that? Um, not a lot. I, ha I will tell you that I've seen conflicting estimates about how much uh, infection is driven by asymptomatic infection, everything from not very much to most. Uh, so I don't have a good handle on it. We do know that people can uh, have the virus in their nose and throat for a day or two before they become ill. And uh, in a lot of cases, we never figure out where someone got their infection. So I, I do think that um, it, it's, it's driving at least some of the cases. I also have to believe that, um, you know, at least in the first day or two of illness, when you're actively coughing and, and expelling more virus into the environment, uh, that you're, you're most likely to be uh, infectious at that point in time. You know, Paul, one, one of the things that uh, has been interesting for me, we, we do a lot of COVID care in our practice. And at least in my population, I've seen a lot of people, they know where they got it from, or they know they were exposed and now they're sick. The thing that I, I think probably bears a little more discussion is the actual length of time people are contagious because the CDC uh, has changed the recommendations from initially the 14, then down to the 10. Um, I see that enforced totally haphazardly with different companies, schools, organizations, people are more or less just winging it. And, uh, you know, then it comes into play when you have one person with it and the household is trying to stay away from him, but they're living in the same home. Do we have any idea on that 14 day thing? Was that a hundred percent of people are no longer contagious and where we're at with the 10 day? Well, you know, there's a spectrum of, uh, of your, of likelihood to be contagious. And uh, it, the data that, that went behind the 10-day recommendation are culture positivity. So they weren't able to actually culture virus uh, in most people past 10 days. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's zero afterwards, but 10 days seems to be a very reasonable stopping point where almost all the risk is over. This is also a reasonable stopping point for this segment of Dr. Doctor. We'll be right back with more of the interview after the break. All right, and we are back with Dr. Doctor talking today to Dr. Paul Sieslak and Dr. John Gravenstein about what else? COVID. And when, when talking about COVID, we're talking about the shot. And John, I had a question regarding uh, vaccine side effects. It's one of the things that patients are always asking about. We've heard a lot about Tom and, and my experience with that. Now we've had so many people vaccinated, probably the fastest in history with a, a newer vaccine. Are we seeing any new data about side effects? We're seeing uh, negative data, reassuring data. Uh, the CDC gave a presentation at the end of January uh, where one of their experts was uh, explaining a system that's comparing millions of vaccinated people to millions of unvaccinated people. And what was reassuring was that there was no connection, no increased rate of heart attack or uh, appendicitis or convulsions or seizures or encephalitis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, myocarditis. Oh, not not Guillain-Barre. That's really Not even Guillain-Barre. That's uh, great. Not, not stroke. Yeah, th these things are happening, but they're happening in the they happen in the unvaccinated people and they happen in the vaccinated people at the same rate. And so there's no concern because there's no elevation. And um, just a few days ago, there was an article in the paper in the um, New York Times about uh, concerns that there's, uh, you know, they, they had some cases, there were some stories they told about people who had thrombocytopenia, which is a, a lack of platelets. And so it leads to bleeding and bruising and uh, various things like that. And, um, but there, of course, the newspaper article had no comparison group. So uh, we, we expect the CDC to be updating these statistics. Uh, and I'm, I'm very sure, you know, this will be, you know, that, that'll, that'll get people's attention and, and that we'll, we'll hear more about that. But so far, nothing is happening at a rate above the rate in unvaccinated people. That's great news. Paul, a lot of articles coming out about the safety of in-person schools. You know, there's, there was this article from North Carolina just published in the journal Pediatrics. 
no cases in a semester of child to teacher transmission of COVID, none. What do you know? How could you summarize what we now know about the safety of in-person classes for kids? Um, well, thank you. There, there have been a lot of uh, efforts to look at this in not only in the United States, but in European countries as well. There was a, a couple of studies out of Germany, a study in Iceland. And, uh, you know, no study is perfect. And all of the countries and regions have slightly different rules in place around who can do what. But uh, I think a picture is emerging uh, that students are not uh, a big means of transmission to others. So, you know, they have found uh, cases in students that appear to be acquired outside of the school system in the community. And a lot of the studies have looked at their contacts uh, in school, both among uh, children and among teachers, and they find very low rates of transmission. In fact, um, a study was published uh, recently uh, in Wisconsin where they were finding, you know, more, more transmission from teachers than they were from students. Uh, now, these are all in the context of, uh, you know, various sets of rules in place to try to mitigate transmission in schools. Most schools are requiring masking of students who are there. They're trying to keep students in small cohorts so that they don't have the opportunity to, to expose many people. And, um, you know, they send them home if they're sick and they quarantine them if they know that they've been exposed. So I, uh, the way I would summarize it is to say that with the, the recommended measures in place, it seems that uh, there's a very low risk of transmission from, from students in school settings. So if we look at it backwards, under what circumstances would you not recommend students be in person now for education? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, if disease rates in, in the community are very high, then you are gonna have a lot of students arriving at school who either, uh, you know, have, I mean, are, are symptomatic or not uh, with COVID-19, and then you're gonna see more likelihood of transmission in the school. So uh, that doesn't mean that the school would drive transmission more than, than otherwise, but it, but it will result in a lot of kids, you know, being excluded from school anyway and uh, concern, more concern for transmission to teachers. But, um, but again, I think if, uh, if the distancing is in place, the, the relatively small cohorts, uh, masking, I, I think you can, you can keep things under control. I know one of the things we like to, to highlight on this show as well is some of the adverse effects and the adverse reactions to the non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, and there was an article in the New York Times a few weeks ago about mental health of school-age kids who are out of school and a huge increase in the number of um, kind of alerts about students' mental health. And even uh, 18 kids had taken their own lives by suicide. And in there's- In uh, Las Vegas. In the one county, right? Yeah, Clark County. Are we seeing more and more data emerging about the dangers of people being isolated for so long, especially kids? Uh, I don't know that the that the suicide experience that unfortunately Clark County has seen uh, is being seen more broadly. We have looked at our data in Oregon and have not seen an increase in youth suicide uh, during this time. So that's, that's reassuring to us. Uh, that said, I think there is broad consensus among uh, physicians anyway that uh, sooner or later, this is devastating to kids. They're, they're losing out on their education. And uh, remember, they're, they're wiring their brains uh, for social interactions and everything, and they're being deprived of those opportunities. So uh, children, I think, have, have borne a disproportionate uh, burden of trying to mitigate transmission by being put out of school when uh, they're not at that high risk of, uh, of having bad side effects from the virus. John, Operation Warp Speed. We had five main companies funded. Pfizer actually turned down funding. They were not funded. Moderna was, so that's one of the five. Merck just dropped out. They're not going to be working on vaccine anymore for COVID. That leaves three other companies that don't have a vaccine currently in the U.S. AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax. What should we know about these three vaccines coming to our shores? The name Warp Speed is being retired by the new administration, so we'll start there. Ah. Uh, so the um, in order by uh, their uh, appearance in the United States in any kind of wide way, 
So uh, Johnson Johnson uh, finished. Uh, Johnson Johnson and Novartis uh, will be probably be the, the third and the fourth vaccine. You mean Novavax? Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Thank you. The other end, uh, yes. Novavax. Um, so J and J. The reason I mentioned them both is because they both uh, did perform some studies in South Africa, which uh, yes. is is relevant because that's where the uh, some of the one of this uh, new quite different. Uh, variant uh, is 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 quite common, and the products did pretty well down there. Um, uh, so the jo- Johnson and Johnson has already filed with the FDA, so they're on a glide path. They'll get their uh, high scrutiny from the FDA in public uh, on February twenty sixth. Uh, it'll be webcast, so if you're a, a, a policy nerd, you can watch it on uh, the FDA and uh, YouTube channels, uh, and uh, and it's. Uh, you know, it got some um, lukewarm reception because its overall efficacy was 65%, but its efficacy against severe disease uh, was 85%, and its efficacy against hospitalization was 100%. So uh, it might look like, uh, you know, you, you, might, you might get a little more symptoms, uh, but, uh, but this is a product I would happily take, and it's a one-dose product. Uh, now, unfortunately, it's also made in Percy six cells, which have a uh, historical, you know, have roots uh, in their harvesting from an aborted fetus. Yes. Um, John, uh, one little factoid I heard, is it true that nobody who's received a full dose of vaccine with time has died of COVID? Uh, none that I know of. Uh, every, all the deaths that I know of were in the placebo group. So uh, I believe that's true. Thank you. Okay, go ahead with where you were. Okay, so uh, the other, um, so the fourth product might be Novavax. Uh, that's a two-dose product. It is uh, 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 on the ethical uh, scale, it would be the greenest of all of these vaccines. It's uh, grown in, uh, if it's at all reassuring, it's grown in insect cells. Um, uh, but anyway, it's a two-dose product. It is, uh, it, it, those cells make a purified protein, a protein that's pr- purified, and uh, it had, uh, boy, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm blanking on the number, but a high 80%, 85, 89, something like that, uh, percent efficacy. Again, uh, very, very good and complete protection against severe disease. Uh, they need a little more time, uh, so the date's not set for that one, uh, but that one will come along. The, the other one is AstraZeneca. That's the product that, uh, that's the chameleon. I mean, every other day they get good news and, and on, you know, on even days they get good news and on odd days they get bad news. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I think hopefully that'll get, they, they, it's a long story. Uh, they, have a, they have a study that's uh, a U.S. primary, most of the sites are in the United States, uh, that uh, uh, will hopefully give them some nice, clean, uh, un- unconfusing uh, data presentation uh, to show the FDA, but they need some more time for, to, for that study to run. And what's the deal with, you know, the AstraZeneca product? The UK is using it in folks younger than 65, but Germany won't approve it. What, what's the thought process there? Yeah. So this is the one where you got to, you got to subscribe to the newspaper because you need each, each edition of the paper to stay up to date. Um, <laughs> at, at first, so, so this is the confusing part. They, they had, uh, several different trials where they, you know, they tried to, they got some trials had a lot of 18 to 55 year olds, a fewer t- trials had 55 or older. So there was less data in the elderly. Um, and, and of course, those two uh, age groups gave different efficacy numbers. And at first, Germany said, um, well, we'll take the vaccine, but we'll only use it for people under 65. And then you know, the, uh, the Europeans have a, a common FDA counterpart um, uh, the, called the European Medicines Agency. And a few days after Germany made that announcement, uh, the EMA came out and said, no, 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 we, 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 we trust the data. We believe it works over 65. So that's, the, that's, the, what, that's what governs across the European Union. Uh, so I, I, I went Googling to see what Germany's actually doing. I, I couldn't find it explicitly, but I think they're following the the the, the EU uh, common approach. Paul, how concerned do we need to be about this South African variant? Um, 
Well, there there will be variants and rumors of variants. Um, <laughs> the, the South African one uh, concerns me more than the others because uh, there are some data, uh, both from people naturally infected with the earlier uh, strain and with um, people who got the vaccine and got some immunity from the vaccine, to suggest that uh, you know their antibodies, their responses against the South African strain are a little bit less. Uh, we, we don't know exactly how that's going to play out. I will say that one of the newer vaccines that hasn't been licensed yet uh, was studied extensively in South Africa and it had uh, less efficacy in that clinical trial than, um, than in other countries that weren't seeing so much of that strain. So um, it, it appears to have at least some ability to evade uh, immunity from the vaccines and, and from natural infection. How important that will be, I think, uh, remains to be determined. John, is it true Pfizer and Moderna are already making booster vaccines that would target this new spike protein? That's a little overstated. What they've, what their their scientists are, you know, have gone back to the lab and are working on uh, what might be a supplemental vaccine. So, That's so if if, yeah. if uh, you know, if you, let's call uh, the 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 original virus the original virus. And then, you know, there's, there's some uh, whippersnapper that's the variant. And um, so we still want to protect against the original virus. We might need right. also uh, seat belt and uh, airbags style uh, to get uh, immunity against the whippersnapper as well. Right. And so, you know, is that a second shot? Is it two vaccines in one vial? That's what they, they need to go check to see if it's physically compatible, physically stable. Um, if you give two, uh, you know, mRNA one and mRNA two in the same syringe, does one dominate or is it an equal? Is it a balanced response? That's all got to get checked. And so they're starting. They're starting the process to check that. Paul, you know, one of the things that I've seen in the news was the success that Israel as the country has been having and having the most uh, percentage, the highest percentage of its population vaccinated faster than other countries. Have we seen a change in, in that country regarding the transmission of COVID? Are we seeing benefit from that or still too soon? Uh, you know, to be honest with you, I haven't followed it all that closely. Um, so um, for, for me anyway, it's too soon to tell. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe John knows something about that. They've had some drop, uh, but, you know, whether it, you know, whether they're lucky, whether it's post-holidays, I think they need to, to wait for it to fall a little, a little further. John, what's your best guess on those who are under 65 and healthy, what month they are likely to be able to receive a vaccine? Uh, that would be me. Uh, I keep walking by these uh, vaccination clinics, hoping that walking slowly past the vaccination clinics at the end of the day, hoping they have an extra dose. Um, the, uh, I, I, I'm, 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 you know, I think we're going to have, you know, each month um, we get more and we get further down the list and, you know, uh, you know, I'm hoping I can get some by April or May. That would be nice. Uh, but, you know, one of the reassure, well, one of the good news pieces, um, Pfizer reported that, it, you know, so, so when you make vaccines, you have a, an approach for making them, and then you try to optimize your process. And what that means is if I, you know, if, if I, uh, uh, it's not changing the variables, but it's, but you, you, you figure out the, can I get higher yield by doing it this way or that way? Just very fine sure. uh, tweaks of the process. And uh, Pfizer seem, says they're going to be able to reduce the amount of time from, you know, from A to Z, uh, all the steps uh, by some, you know, several dozen days. And that should help them increase their yield, their production, um, their shipping rate. And so that's good news. And, you know, hopefully things will, things will get better. Excellent. Um, we've, I've received both doses of vaccine now. It's been over a week or two since my second dose. What can I do differently now? Anything? Uh, well, actually, just today, I believe, CDC came out with a recommendation stating that um, if you're 14 days past your second dose and you're exposed to somebody who has COVID-19, uh, you would not need to quarantine. Uh, we're still recommending uh, masking and, and distancing and everything. Uh, but, you know, along with the vaccination, um, 
you know, we think that's adequate protection for people who are exposed but not known to have the disease. So that's 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 one small uh, victory. Well, have we had any further thought about changes to the non-pharmaceutical interventions? I heard someone suggesting instead of six feet going down to a smaller radius. I don't know if that's science-based or just uh, it seems nice to wean on and titrate off of things. Um, is there any movement there, especially I'm, I'm looking at every other pew blocked off for church and how many people are standing in the lobby. Um, any news on that front? No, I don't have any news for you there. Um, you know, it's a spectrum. Again, uh, we think that if you're trying to protect yourself from uh, large droplet transmission, that those water heavy droplets tend to fall to the ground uh, within about six feet. Now I've seen, you know, like uh, in Germany, they were saying uh, one, and a, one and a half meters, which is a little bit less than six feet. Uh, you know, the greater the distance, the safer you are. Um, I don't see us changing in the United States anytime soon. One of the things with the variants, the South African situation was that um, a bunch of the people in South Africa who, who got, you know, the new variant virus had already had the original virus infection. And so, you know, you, you know, don't let your guard down, um, you know, be that thinking that, uh, you know, we're the, the, the tide is going out. I mean, we've got, we may have multiple virus types that are uh, each uh, competing to infect us. Paul, ivermectin colchicine. Is there any, uh, any potential success here in treating COVID? Well, let me say first that that I think ivermectin has a lot more going for it than hydroxychloroquine ever did. Uh, but uh, there there are conflicting data. You know, some studies seem to show benefit, and other studies not so much. And uh, I'm I'm waiting for um, uh, more definitive evidence before I uh, endorse either of those therapies. Good. And the same with colchicine. There was one good study so far. So uh, 45 seconds left. What's What's the last thing you want to leave with listeners, John? Uh, get vaccinated as soon as you can. Um, be equitable. Uh, don't don't uh, don't hog the line. Uh, don't get don't get in line when other people vulnerable haven't been haven't had their turn. More Paul, what do you want to say? The favors of the Lord are not exhausted. His mercies are not spent. They are renewed each morning. So great is His faithfulness. Keep your spirits up. Hang in there. God bless you, Paul. Thank you, John, both for being with us and enlightening our guest, Dr. Doctor. Thank you, guys. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the long-awaited answer to the medical trivia question. Influenza, how much has it gone down this year compared to last year? Uh, it's kind of astounding. I actually went and added up cases, and at first I did it wrong. I was actually comparing this year's cases to one week's cases, and it was still about 10% of that week. So it's remarkable. It's actually gone down through the end of January, 98.8%. I mean, it's it's just astounding. Over 128,000 cases in the same time period last year. This year in those same labs, just under 1,500 cases. I really want to ask, uh, next time we talk to Paul and John, what they think about that, because I don't know if it's just all these non-pharmaceutical interventions or if it's maybe COVID's really that much more contagious or if people aren't testing for it. It's hard to figure, but I have not been seeing influenza like we normally do. No, and, and we know it's less contagious. It has that lower R naught or reproduction number. Uh, so it, it's got to be um, also all these other interventions. We're just not as close. We're not shaking hands as much. Um, it's pretty incredible. Wow. So hopefully, you know, we can do some simple things in the future. Uh, I don't want to go around the rest of my life wearing a mask, but some, some of the simple things maybe to uh, reduce cases. So we heard a lot from John and Paul. Uh, no George and Ringo this time. But <laughs> Andrew, what are your top three takeaways for this episode? You know, I, I love talking to these guys. The biggest thing I, I took away was I was so happy to hear that the vaccine's actually safer than we even thought it might be. And some of those things like Guillain-Barre syndrome that we're accustomed to seeing with influenza, that doesn't even appear to be there with the vaccines for COVID. So number one, I guess, is safer than we thought uh, with the vaccine. 
Um, number two, I would say uh, we're not out of this yet. I, I talked to a lot of people and you see the numbers falling. There's this hope, I think, that the cases falling means we're on the, the outside of this. We're coming out of it. It does not appear to be the case. So we got to stay strong. But some good news for number three, if you've had both doses of the vaccine and it's been two weeks, when you come into contact with someone, you don't have to quarantine. So that's really encouraging for folks who've had the vaccines. That's a step in the right direction to getting back to normal life. That is increased freedom. And we all want more freedom to move around and see those people we love. Thank you for listening to us here on Dr. Doctor. We try to provide you the best information we can through a Catholic lens. We are the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association coming to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Be sure to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. Be sure also to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. The Catholic Medical Association supports your right to know. The birth control pill has been available for over 50 years. When it was released to market in 1960, it was thought to be the miracle drug that would free women's lives and improve family life. However, the pill has major side effects for the woman, such as weight gain, depression, stroke, and heart attack. Modern methods of natural family planning are more than 95% effective and have no harmful effects on the woman or her marriage. To learn more about natural family planning, visit cathmed.org.